Okay. Now I got to remember how to run a podcast again. <laughs> well, um, we're back. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I thought the day would never come. <laughs> I know. Cause I keep putting it off. <laughs> well, it's not just you. It's not just you. Takes two people to run this podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> and Theodore, it's his fault, really. Well, he's over here actually napping. I've got him to go out before we did this. So oh, nice. Shouldn't hear a peep from him the whole time we record. Yeah, we can hear uh, Theodore the dog in high definition now with that new microphone. I'm hoping that this helps <laughs> to not hear him. <laughs> yeah, it should. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you want to start today or? I can start. I mean, I it doesn't can. matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Sure. Oh my God. Mm, it's like okay. our first episode all over again. <laughs> Who are we? Okay. So, okay. Welcome back for season two of Gummy and Jeans Hysterical History, where Emily and I sit down, talk about our favorite stories, and of course, laugh. We are so excited to be back with a new and improved season, and we can't wait to go on this journey with you all. So without further ado, here we are. For the first story back, I'm going to tell you about Margaret Ann Bulkley, a.k.a. Dr. James Barry. Oh, yeah. Pseudonym. Well, oh, wait a minute. I Well, let's just wait. And I see guess we'll how find we out. Here. Yes. So. Margaret was born in 1789 in country Cork, Ireland. So we're taking a trip all the way across the ocean to Ireland. During this time, as I'm sure we could all assume, women were not allowed to have any formal education. Um, they went to like, you know, the, the first couple of years and then they had to like start doing domestic stuff and like working from home. Um, and obviously they definitely could not have any medical training and Margaret just thought that was bullshit. <laughs> so, um, she was really upset. Um, but there wasn't much for her, you know, to do. I mean, that's just how it was in the culture. So during her teen years, her family fell on hard times and Margaret and her mother found themselves moving to London to live with her mother's brother, James Barry. Oh, okay. But this is not where you, it's not going to go where you think it's going to go. Okay. That's okay. I like that. Not predictable. Yes. This is very unpredictable. So this allowed Margaret to meet some of James's friends who happened to be Venezuelan exile, General Francisco de Miranda and David Stewart Irksine, the Earl of Buchan. The Buck group on. was <laughs> okay. So the group was very impressed by her intelligence and likely played a key role in the plan that would take place that I'm about to tell you um, that will help Margaret through the next phase of her education and medical career. So OG James Barry dies in 1806 left enough money for Margaret and her mother to, you know, make it through and they don't have to worry about any hardships. 
And this also left the name James Barry up for grabs. (laughs) So after three short years, Margaret Bulkley no longer exists. And instead in her place, James Barry. Oh, wait, okay. Are are we going to get into the details of like how? So basically she was pissed that she could not continue being educated. Um, She actually, before the hardship with her mother or in her family caused her to to move, um, she actually had a child that was raised, like her mother raised it. Um, and it's said that it was possibly from, um, like an incestual, like rape situation with one of her uncles. Um, so she just was like, I think at the, the core of it, she just was tired of being like a woman at the time. So, and she really, really wanted to be a doctor, which 100% was not a possibility. So she just decided to take over James Barry's life in a sort of way. Um, so she just like became James Barry after her uncle died. Um, it's amazing how easy it is to like, oh, I'm just going to take this person's identity in 1806. Like you can't do that now. Well, no, of course not. <laughs> but I also think, and it, it comes up a little bit in the, the um next set of stuff I'm going to talk about but they also think that the two friends of the original James that she met um Francisco and David actually were like like super played a key role in this and like helped her create with her uncle create this plan for after he was dead so like it it's really awesome I think if that's that part is true to have these men like support her in that way um so at all times so for anyone that's going to be confused we're now going to use he pronouns like he him pronouns because that's what the new James that he's a boy so if you're confused get with the times it's 2022 (laughs) So at all times, he was found in an overcoat. It did not matter the weather, overcoat 24-7, three-inch high shoe inserts to make him taller, and had a distinctive high-pitched voice for obvious reasons. Um, And they didn't have, like, the hormone supplements that um, anyone takes now, so he was kind of just stuck with um, making his voice, like changing his voice on his own. Um, Barry moved to Edinburgh um, and enrolled in medical school in 1809, which that's like a lot, I think, in three years to like change your whole identity and go to finish enough schooling to where you can qualify to go to medical school. Um, But hey, if you're driven, I guess it can work. You go get it, Newberry. (laughs) Yes, yes, we're here for it. So he made the decision to alter his age, um, obviously because his uncle was older than him when he passed away. 
Um, so that way it would match his boyish look due to how young he looked. There are many rumors circulating that he was too young to be in medical school, uh, but Barry never wavered, never changed the story. The story always stayed the same. Uh, there was a, there was even a time that Barry wasn't allowed to take the medical exams due to being like, quote unquote, too young. But this is when um, one of the old friends, Lord Erksine, uh, came back into the story and kind of intervened and helped him uh, finish those exams, which kind of ties back into like they probably helped with this whole idea. Mm -hmm. uh, he received his degree in medicine at 22. Oh, damn. Yeah. So like my question is. Like, were doctors prepared enough? <laughs> like, <laughs> because I mean, we get we graduated Marietta at like what 22, 23. Mm -hmm. So to imagine having my doctorate at that age like makes me panic. Yeah, well, one thing I'll say is that I feel like in healthcare you learn a lot by doing, but also I'm not saying that's a great thing, but also mm -hmm. <laughs> The practice of medicine was still very much experimental oh yeah that time so i mean for a long time that wasn't even really an occupation you just had some you know weirdo or witch or something walking around town with their bruise you know <laughs> oh my God. you're gonna get haunted <laughs> that's fine talking all of this mad shit to all <laughs> good lord okay so um barry then says, you know what? Having just my medical license is not enough. So he decides to enlist in the army and starts out as an assistant surgeon. Again, the age issue comes up, um, but he was allowed to serve ultimately. And he began his military career on July 6, 1813. Um, started out working as a hospital assistant in the British army. So kind of like we transitioned from Ireland to Britain and he automatically has British citizenship because he took over someone else's life who has that citizenship. So mm -hmm. makes it a little easier to move around the UK, I guess. Um, eventually Barry served in Cape Town, South Africa for 10 years where he befriended the governor, Lord Charles Somerset. Oh, wow. Side story. <laughs> I didn't put this in my notes, but like the more I'm thinking about it, the more I think it's important. So it is said that Charles possibly knew Barry's secret because Barry ends up moving in with him. And of course, no one else will know the secret. So there's like speculation and like rumors are swirling um, in South Africa because obviously they're thinking that they're gay and that just cannot happen. So that is such an interesting situation. I mean, yes. Yeah. But I there's mean, there's nothing to say, to be fair, there isn't anything to say that when he moved in, they were having a sexual relationship. Mm -hmm. So like there is a really big possibility that Lord, Lord Charles had no idea. Um, and just because they were living together, everybody just assumed like, oh, you're living together. So you're automatically like having sexual relations. And like, that's not true. 
Um, I mean, we know that now just because people live together doesn't mean they're having sex, but mm-hmm. back then that's just not automatically everybody was doing everybody <laughs> and that's yeah. it. Yeah. There's so many different scenarios that could be happening mm-hmm. there. So, yeah, but I did find it interesting that because he was serving in the British army, he didn't just like live on base or live with his fellow soldiers. Like he decided to move in with the governor. So maybe that kind of is why people think that mm-hmm. the governor knew and that's why he moved in. I, I don't know. I couldn't find anything on that. Um, but I thought that was interesting to think about. So Barry, very skilled surgeon, like super skilled. And he was actually the first to perform a successful cesarean section where both the mother and child survived. Okay. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Super big deal. And not only do we stand Barry, James Barry for that, but we stand him because he also decided to dedicate um, his life to social reform in which he spoke out against sanitary conditions and mismanagement of not only barracks where the soldiers lived, but prisons and asylums as well. So he just is like, listen, I'm going to change my identity and then I'm going to be like, you know, moving mountains and just making, making things happen. So throughout his adult years, Barry went wherever his services were needed. He continued climbing the ranks as he traveled the world. In 1857, he reached the rank of inspector general, which made him in charge of military hospitals. So he's like, well, this is even more important of a role than I have before. So, you know, what we're going to do, we're going to use this to continue my fight for proper sanitation. So he went so far as to continue his fight for proper sanitation, but also argue for better food and proper medical care for soldiers and their families, and then also prisoners. That's pretty progressive. Yes, very progressive. But also we'll say that's going to tie very well into my story when we get there. Oh, the sanitation piece. But anyways, I love how we match, but don't know we're going to match till we start talking. Synced. (laughs) So unfortunately, here's the crazy part. So he spends most of his life fighting for proper sanitation. But Barry dies from dysentery. And if you don't know exactly what dysentery is, let me tell you. So dysentery is the infection of the intestines that causes diarrhea containing blood or mucus. And then I was like, okay, well, how do you get dysentery? And it usually is spread as a result of poor hygiene. So that was kind of sad because you've been fighting for proper sanitation forever. And then basically you're dying because of improper sanitation. Um, so that kind of hurt my heart a little bit, uh, but he died on July 25th, 1865 because obviously he's living a double life. Well, not really a double life. He kind of killed off his old life and started a new one. Um, his last wishes were to be buried in the clothes he died in without his body being washed or going through like, um, the ready rituals for burial. 
of freaking course, no one listens to his final wishes. And so a nurse undresses his body to prepare it for burial. And don't you know, she finds two crazy things. One, female anatomy. And two, telltale stretch marks from pregnancy. Lo and behold, Dr. James Barry's a woman. We've dun, been dun, swindled. Dun. So I had two options here. So the reason I started telling this story is because I follow a bunch of history accounts, as we're all probably aware, which is why we literally are doing a history podcast. And I found this story on, I think it's like history and memes posted about it. Um, and it said that no one knew about this situation for like a hundred years until the British army decided to release the records showing that Dr. James Barry was a woman, but the other source, because most of my information I found for the story, um, came from like, uh, the history channel online and they said the secret was made pop, uh, public after letters that um, exchanged between Barry's doctor and the military were leaked. And so the doctor who signed the death certificate basically said, quote, it's none of my business, end quote, whether Dr. Barry was male or female. Um. So it's, I'm not really quite sure if the secret was leaked at the time or if the secret was leaked a hundred years later, but Dr. Barry is buried in Kensal Green Cemetery, which is in Northwest London. And one of the quotes I found from his, um, the history channel was one thing remains for sure. Dr. Barry was way ahead of his time as a doctor and as a humanitarian. And I just thought that single sentence like summed up the whole story. But that is the story of Dr. James Barry. (laughs) Got an exciting one to kick us back off here in 2022. Yeah. Um, I have a couple up my, well, actually more than a couple up my sleeve, but I was excited to start with this one just because I feel like we needed like a good, a good feeling to start the year off. Yeah. I have a lot of respect for that doc who did the autopsy and was like, oh, it's none of my business. Live mm-hmm. your life. That's a lot of the, that story kind of shocked me about how progressive the people seem to be in that. Yeah. Time. Well, and I'm glad too, like that they still credit him for the C-section stuff. Um, because I know a lot of times if, if a woman finds something or if it was, um, found in like a taboo way, a lot of people uh, like in history have found ways to kind of like dull down who made those discoveries or kind of like hide that information. And I just think that does like that, that does not do anyone any justice, the people that are using the information the people that found it, whatever. So I'm very happy that they still credited him with that found like that finding. Yeah. Yeah. They find a way to minimize the accomplishment 
or erase yeah. it altogether. Yes. All right. Your turn. Yeah. Well, I said my story's not about sanitation, but there's some parts about sanitation. So that's why I said, oh, this is really like pertinent to my story. I love um, that. Again, I love when we match and don't mean to. <laughs> it means that we're good co-hosts. Yes, for sure. So I'm going to start this off. So I've been reading a book called Invisible Influence. Mm -hmm. I actually just finished it, but it's essentially kind of the premise of the book is that social influence really dictates a lot of our decision-making and that when there's new ideas, people need to kind of be in the middle of, it needs to be, be familiar enough, but it also needs to be new and exciting enough that they care. So it's like, they need right. to be in that middle ground where it's, it's not too scary, but it's also, you know, kind of just scary enough, you know? <laughs> yes. Okay. So I'm going to start off with a description from a patent that aimed to do just that. So this patent is from 1899. Okay. So here it is. The leading feature of the design resides in a vehicle body provided at its front end with a forwardly projecting figure of a horse's head, the neck portion of the figure being curved on lines, merging into the outline of the contiguous portion of the body. The minor features of the design are the rectangular configuration of the body and the parts associated therewith, exclusive of the figure of the horse's head. What? Does any of that make sense to you at all? Uh, the horse's head part, and that's it. So, like, is this like a rocking horse? Or is this like the, um, oh, is this the horse that they, like, used to, as a con, where all the people were hiding inside of it? No. Oh. <laughs> But no, so, I don't know what you're talking about. It's called Horsey Horseless. Okay. I'm going to just, can you see my screen? Oh, like a horse. Oh, where'd the horse It's a car. Body? It's a car with a fake horse on the front. Why would we even have that? <laughs> well, that's the story of why that was created. And <laughs> yeah. I, know. I cannot wait for people to see the picture of this on our social media because I just can't. I can't. You can't. You can't imagine it unless you see the picture. Like that. That patent description is not very helpful. No, because I was like, oh, you just described a horse and buggy, and then I saw there were no freaking legs, and I was like, <laughs> what the heck? So yeah, this is the horsey horseless. It's basically an early model car but they put a horse's head on the front and it goes back to that idea where people needed to be familiar, but it also needs to be new and exciting. So they said, let's make this car and put a horse's head on the front because people are scared of these cars. So if you just imagine there's this loud boxy machine, it's clanking down the road while you're just quietly in your buggy with your real horse attached to the front going to town this thing's like zooming by. It's like witchcraft. It's like the devil machine, right? Right. But and I also feel like if I have like a clip clop, clip clop, like real life horse, <laughs> I would feel even more creeped out that you just stuck a basically like chest up of a horse on 
some flying death machine. Well, right. It sounds really weird, but it actually makes a lot of sense. So I said the car comes speeding down, which is, you know, it, it only went 35 miles per hour, but a horse. Say it went like 15. That's it. <laughs> no, 35 actually. And a horse pulling a carriage only goes like eight to 10 miles per hour at a trot. So the car is definitely a lot faster than the horse pulling the carriage. Not right. faster than a horse by itself, because that's like 50 miles per hour. We're not there yet. But, <laughs> and it was actually called, even before they made this design with the fake horse head on the front, it was called a horseless, horseless carriage, because that's what the first cars look like. They were just a carriage with a motor in it, essentially. That's fair. Mm -hmm. So these horseless carriages, aka cars, are like this brave new world for the adventurous and the problem though was that horses are really important to the economy during this time period in the late 1800s and these cars would come down the street and it would scare the horses so much so that some of the owners of the horses would threaten to shoot the drivers on site because it was just freaking out the horses so much do you think that's how the amish feel currently <laughs> Yeah, maybe we should go back in rural areas to putting horses on the front of cars. <laughs> so that's the problem. How do we create a new automobile that won't scare the horses on the road? So this solution is the Horsey Horseless, created by a pastor named Uriah Smith. And like I said, the patent's from 1899. And basically the design is a large wooden horse head attached to the front of the buggy, thereby resembling a typical horse. So this is a quote from Smith. The live horse would be thinking it's another horse. And before he could discover his error and see that he had been fooled, the strange carriage will have passed. <laughs> that's like, that's like when deer hunters set out like fake deer. That's literally what that is. Yes, that's a hundred percent. But like put it on a car moving 35 miles per hour. <laughs> Oh my God. So this kind of goes back to the point that these new technologies tend to mimic the things that they replace before they start to develop an identity of their own, which is kind of why I thought this story was, was interesting. This, this example was actually in the book called Invisible Influence that I, I was reading. So I, was, mm. I, I immediately wrote it down on my phone. I was like, I have to research this horsey horse list. Um, this is nonsense. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but like I mentioned, the horse was kind of became a huge deal in the 19th century, but really not until the the latter half of the 1800s. Uh, like early on, cities were pretty walkable and pretty much only the wealthy owned horses. It was kind of a status animal. So if you had a horse, you were probably wealthy. So only really the wealthy had horses pulling their carriages. The poor would use an ox to pull their wagon longer travels. But most cities in the 19th century were still small enough. You know, they were usually no wider than two, three miles at most. So very walkable to get around. Um, but oddly, the horse came to popularity because of the steam engine. So I know that sounds counterintuitive. What? Yes, I know. This, this story is just like bizarre all over the place i feel like we're talking about every single like technological advance in one story kind of yeah 
I mean, it just exemplifies how important this period was in America, really, and how much was developing so quickly. Yeah. But the reason that the steam engine made the horse more important is because they were building all this infrastructure like railroads and canals and ports, and they needed more horses to transport factory workers and goods while the things were in process of being built. So there weren't roads or anything yet. So horses were what was used to transport stuff. And because there's just so much being built in such a short amount of time, the need for horses just explodes. And this now, the horse now becomes not just an animal of wealth, it becomes an animal of practicality. So Hmm. really they become the backbone of 19th century life. So by the year 1900, I found that it was estimated that around 24 million horses in the US were working to plow fields, pull street trolleys in cities, um, pull carriages of private citizens. And that's a six-fold increase from 1840 when we only wow. used 4 million horses across the United States. That's so crazy. Like, we went from 4 million to 24 million horses essentially working in 60 years. And just because we decided that we were going to build more stuff. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, exactly. Like because we were building this new advancing technology, we latched onto this older technology that helped us build it. Mm-hmm. But then we get problems because now the horse becomes a problem in urban areas. And this is where it relates to sanitation. Mm. Because one horse would dump between 20 and 50 pounds of manure a day on the street plus a gallon of urine. So Ooh. now thinking about one horse, add 500 horses per square mile. You're basically like swimming in that stuff. Yes. Yes. Ooh, I'm going to throw up. <laughs> First episode back, I throw up on on <laughs> while we're recording. But Again, the progressive movement in the U.S. was championing efficiency, sanitation, and safety improvements. And they see these new cool automobile machines coming around and they're like, well, wait a minute. That's probably a good way to get rid of the horse pollution is to start using these automobiles. So, yeah, that's, (laughs) we've, this new technology. Yeah. Comes in. (laughs) And we have to start using this old technology, horses. And they're like, oh, you know how we fix it? We are using old technology. Let's make another new technology, cars. So it's this weird thing. Decorate it like old. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And also, like to go back to the sanitation really quick, I'm just sitting here thinking, like, so all of that, like, waste from all these horses Mm -hmm. and the fact that a lot of homes still did not have like indoor plumbing so you have like human waste and a lot of people were just like dumping that stuff wherever they felt like to dump it so like no wonder no wonder we had like the bubonic plague and stuff (laughs) like Yes. Well, there was, there was one point that I was reading and I didn't include this, but it was just interesting. Like it was so dirty that the horses had their own epidemic 
of like this horse flu and a bunch of them died off and everybody was panicking. They're like, what are we going to do without all of our horses? They're like the backbone now. This was in, I think like the 1870s or something. Like maybe here's a thought, clean up after them. Yes. (laughs) And you won't have to worry about it. They just dumped it in the river. Where they get their freaking drinking water from. 100%. I can't even... Oh my God. Oh God. This is it. Take me now. <laughs> so the next section I was going to go through was from horse to horsepower. I have a lot of horse puns in this sheet that I haven't shared, but uh, I-, I felt like I would spare us all of those. Um, <laughs> so like me, I think of cars being generally widely available in the early 1900s. And I think that's because that's when Henry Ford industrialized the process and mm-hmm. his he took it down from like it would take 12 hours to make one car to like two mm-hmm. so they were just churning those babies out in the early 1900s yep. but it was and actually said, and we can do it all in a five-day work week 100 <laughs> percent but it was actually the first automobile patent was filed by carl benz we can probably guess what company Carl is associated with uh, Audi. You're joking, right? Just kidding. Yes. <laughs> Please say you're joking. Yeah, Mercedes. Yeah. Okay. Great. Ooh, I'm not an idiot. We were gonna have to cancel this podcast before we even started season two. Emily is not smart enough to do a history <laughs> podcast. The end. Unqualified. <laughs> just revoke. Just revoke my bachelor's degree. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> But um, it was actually the first patent was filed in 1886. So patent number 37435, it's going to be my new iPhone passcode. Uh, maybe we can li- all get in and send Maggie weird texts now. <laughs> she would love that, surely. No, she would just ignore them. Um, so that was kind of like the birth certificate of the automobile. That's the first, like idea of it but it actually took nearly 50 years to dislodge the horse from what (laughs) the word dislodge uh from all the work they were doing throughout north america so this transition was not smooth or inevitable so (laughs) so there's just a lot of problems that come along with the horse so there's actually not a people really own them because it was expensive to own them and the carriage but they were like pulling around these giant trolleys throughout cities and stuff and transporting people all over the place so Mm -hmm. it created public transport basically for citizens um but at the same time like obviously we have this issue with all the manure and urine like everybody's waiting in it um so it's interesting because at one point the horse and carriage system was a lot more diversified and like it really connected rural areas to cities because one that's obviously where you get horses and two the rural area would basically produce i guess quote unquote the fuel for the horse so there was a lot more Mm -hmm. trade happening like economic benefits And then the automobile swoops in and everybody's got to have one when, you know, it gets easy to manufacture and cheaper. So like an iPhone. 
Yeah, basically. I mean, <laughs> the automobile comes in and replaces this really diverse transport system. Like everybody's either walking or on a public like horse transport. Now everybody owns a car. So basically what we did, well, actually, this is an interesting fact I'll throw out first. It basically, not shockingly, extinguished a bunch of businesses and professions from carriage makers to teamsters who would like pull the carriages. And oh, it drove, I'm sure even like horseshoers or whatever those are yeah. called, like the guys that put the horseshoes on. Yeah, like so many, there was a whole sector built upon taking care of these horses. Mm-hmm. So it drove down the price of grain so dramatically that the U.S. Bureau of Census actually stated that they believe the horse to car transition is one of the main contributing factors to the Great Depression because of the economic shifts the automobile caused, Mm, which is kind of wild. And this puts it more into perspective. In 1890, there were almost 14,000 companies in the U.S. building carriages, just building carriages. By 1920, there were only 90 companies. Oh, my God. So it was a very painful transition and oddly yeah, and like all those people that lost their jobs who like had worked I mean how many years have you worked to to hone your craft in mm-hmm. carriage making or I literally don't I won't know why I can't think of the word but like ho- hoof shoeing and <laughs> you know what I mean like and getting your your grain just right so that mm-hmm. way like all of that stuff you take so many years to just fine tune and now some guy with an idea about this rolling death machine and everyone's like i have to freaking have it right now and now all the horses are just like out of a job too yeah and it is weird to think of it like that but yeah all these horses now you have like these 24 million horses who are like quote unquote unemployed what are you going to do with those they're That's a good question. And I'm going to be the one to say it because we all know I just can't keep my mouth shut. And I am the one out of the two of us to say something like this. Typically, they'd send them to a glue factory. I I know it's going to be a happy episode talking about a horsey horseless. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, if you think about it, though, there's only so many horses a farm can take. Mm hmm especially now that no one's buying grain so like you're not you're not going to be able to invest as much money growing grain just for what some extra horses you now have Mm -hmm. to take in from all these companies who are working in cities who cannot house the horses what else are you supposed to do with them yeah emily with the daily dose of realness that we all needed you're welcome (laughs) Listen, I'm all about like horse sanctuaries and stuff, but horse sanctuaries were not happening in the early 1900s. Oh, God, no. I mean, they weren't even taking care of their own public health, let alone the health of a horse. So, correct. Yeah. Yeah. They were, they, they did not have the capacity to do so. <laughs> no. And it's, and that's, and that's the stuff that's like not fair, I think, is mm-hmm. like you're the one that, you know, told everybody like breed these horses breed these horses and stuff and then now you're like well we don't need them anymore so we all have to figure out what to do with them that's just annoying yeah i mean this is a whole economic sector that is just completely shaken up and Mm -hmm. the 
I don't want to say it's not funny, but like the ironic thing is that we have automobiles replacing horses because horses are polluting the rivers and they're like unsafe, like they're not sanitary. But now look where we're at. Automobiles are one of the leading causes of the planet's CO2 pollution Mm -hmm. and other serious issues. So it's like we got an automobile to fix this like sanitation pollution problem and it's worse somehow it turned out worse so but i i think this this kind of went everywhere a little bit no 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 not no when i was writing it i was like okay we need to thread this into like a story whitley like what so i gotta i gotta loop it back now we're gonna loop it back to horsey horseless (laughs) turn the tables back so back to the beginning this brings us back to horsey horseless so this may be actually disappointing for you and our listeners, but it's actually unclear whether horsey horseless style vehicles were actually built. The only what? evidence exists in patent drawings and vintage renderings. So there's no like actual models that exist to let us know if they actually produce this or not. Hmm. But the reason I like wanted to talk about it is because it's just an interesting it it was interesting to look at the ebb and flow of how these different technological advances come and go and how we try to cope with them as people yeah which is very interesting because new trends and change they're not driven by technology or economics alone so individuals companies even governments make these choices based on societal issues and cultural values and that's what we see here. And that's like kind of this whole, I don't know, there's just a lot of interplay going on here of social trends, cultural trends, economic trends, and it just flipped the world upside down. But it's, yeah, I don't know. This this book I'm reading has like turned my brain into gloop, I think, but. Yeah, I'm just still trying to wrap my head around the fact that they might not have made it yeah like i'm aware that i'm sure there are so many patents that people are like this would be such a great idea and but they either like don't have the money for it or by the time it gets approved like it's unnecessary so i'm sure there are a ton of patents that are never made but like that's such a specific (laughs) thing that it blows my mind that they didn't even make just like one yeah, it's it's just completely unknown. Hmm. But it's hilarious. We will have to post a picture of this thing. Oh, it's just, we will. I can't wait for people to see this. It's hilarious. But yeah, I don't know. It's just change causes people to do some weird things. And this was an yeah. example of somebody trying to cope with the automobile flipping the world upside down. Mm-hmm. Wow. But that's, that's that's it. That's my really long horsey horseless into how horses (laughs) became an economic sector into how they polluted everything into how automobiles pollute everything. And then somehow poorly tied it back to horsey horseless. So there you go. (laughs) That's it. This is our first episode ever. Thanks for listening to Gummy and Jean's Hysterical History.
Yes. And please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, mm-hmm. TikTok. You have to if you want to see this picture. Yeah, I think that's all the social media we're on, right? I think so. Yeah. Oh, and then don't forget to leave us a review. Oh, yes. Please do leave a review. We had a really nice review left by somebody and oh yeah, just Um, made our day. And I want to pull her name up because I feel like it just blew my mind that someone who we're not friends (laughs) left us a review. (laughs) But um, it's uh, G Scarb was the name and she left us a really nice review and if you're hearing this we really appreciate it and we'd love for you to like dm us because we have so many questions of how you found us um (laughs) (laughs) because we're vain and we want to (laughs) know well no i'm just surprised that somebody other than like our co-workers and friends listen to our podcast i mean it's great news great yeah, but how do yeah. we get more people to listen to the podcast? That's the yeah. that's the golden question. So, yeah, thanks yeah. for the amazing reviews and to everybody who's been reviewing the podcast. Uh, it just makes it so much more enjoyable to hear that that people are having a good time listening to us and just feel like they're having a conversation with us. So, yeah, and the more people we get to leave reviews, the more people can find us, and then the more people that listen to us, the more things we can do because we have so many ideas. Um, but right now just doesn't make sense until we have more listeners. So like, tell your friends, tell your acquaintances, tell your frenemies, tell everybody, especially the frenemies. Yeah. We love a good frenemy story. So let us know. We'll have to do some this season, but that's, yeah, I love it. Yes. I love a good frenemy. Let's get on it. So Emily and I will do some frenemy stories while you leave us reviews and we'll see you throughout this season. Bye everybody.